0: If you said to me to describe the story, I would say, don't believe it, but it's true.
1: I can't even imagine somebody doing something like this.
2: It's also the perfect crime, because sometimes the thing that's blatant right in front of your face is a thing you don't expect. I was going to be a million-dollar winner. I was game for
3: something exhilarating. From 1980 to 2001, There were almost no legitimate winners of the high-value game pieces in the McDonald's Monopoly game.
4: Uncle Jerry told me, if you want a game piece, this is how it's spent.
5: Hi, I'm James Lee Hernandez. And I'm Brian Lazarte. We are the executive producers and directors of McMillions, an HBO documentary series.
4: And this is the official McMillions podcast, episode five. We do have some swear words in this episode. So if you are listening with young children,
5: or if you're just sensitive, if you have sensitive ears, cover them and then continue listening to the podcast. Joining us on today's episode is AJ Glum, one of the Game Piece distributors, AKA recruiters for Uncle Jerry. But before we do that, let's recap what we saw in this week's episode, episode five of McMillions on HBO. So what happened in this week's episode, Brian? Well, we saw a number of
4: arrests. We saw a fax machine debacle uh, to (laughs) probably the (laughs) highest and most embarrassing of proportions. I don't think that there's another fax story that exist out there. In fact, if there is, we should ask people to send it to us because could you actually send a worse fax than what
5: happened in this episode? It's still unbelievable that a government entity did this and it almost <laughs> took down, or at least made the the arrests and, and really the pinnacle of everything that you build up within this case almost came crashing down before it even started. Indeed.
4: And so... When the arrest happened, you know, we we always found it interesting that all the arrests were happening simultaneously. Doug Matthews, of course, trying to uh, be first in line, getting his guy first, which is AJ Glum, who we're going to talk to in a a little bit here, ended up being the last of the federal agents to get their guy. There's actually more to that story. We uh, we only barely scratched the surface of Doug's undercover attempts at uh, getting AJ out the door.
5: We get into the arrest of the man himself, Jerry Jacobson, a.k.a. Uncle Jerry. Then the government now trying to find out, how did Jerry do it? Is he going to cooperate and tell us how he actually pulled all of this off?
4: This is the start of what we're about to get into in episode six, which is the trial.
5: We always really love the idea of this episode because throughout the first four episodes, you're hearing from the FBI you're hearing from the w- Winner's criminal Uncle Jerry side of things. And in episode five, all of the worlds collide. You're having Doug Astrologa show up to a- arrest Dwight Baker, and then you're having him talk to George Chandler. You're having Doug Matthews, who's arresting AJ Glum, and you have everyone talking about each other. You even have Gloria Brown talking about when... Special Agent Tim Adams shows up at her door. Seeing everyone then actually interacting together and talking about each other was just such a fascinating concept for us to have it all meet in this one huge moment. You
4: get that sense of completion to to the story. At least this is the beginning of the end. And obviously the way that we end this episode is talking about the informant, which is actually the very beginning of this whole thing. And we went down this rabbit hole of who could the informant actually be? And as we started talking to each of our subjects, it actually made us think differently about who it could possibly be. James, you know, when, when we were first going out there, do you remember who you thought the informant could be?
5: Yes, I do, actually, very clearly. And I was wrong. <laughs> I was definitely wrong. Everyone has their own theory about it we had our own theories about who could possibly be whoever you think it could be you, you you might be wrong now with us today is aj glum aj was one of the main recruiters for jerry jacobson one of the most honest humans i have ever met my entire life he talks about uh, his past uh, drug running, like I would talk about my job at McDonald's when I was 16.
0: Matthews was one of the original people who arrested me.
3: We had some snippets of the phone calls just to let him know we had what we had, and he decided not to cooperate, one of the very few.
0: I remember we were arguing in the car. He said, "Yeah, you think you're some gangster or something." I said, "Yeah, and you think you're Don Johnson you know from Miami Vice and at the end, he, he, he was okay in the front. He was a little bit of an asshole.
4: But you did offer him a cup of coffee.
0: I did. I'm that way. I'm very friendly.
5: <laughs> and now we have him here today. So let's talk to AJ. A lot of people always want to know the motivations. How does somebody deal drugs? How does somebody get involved? What is going through your
0: mind? And You know, they always say money is the motivator. And to a certain degree, it is. But uh, with me, boredom had a lot to do with it. Not that I had that much money. I knew right from wrong my whole life. I mean, my dad would beat my fucking brains in if you know if I did. Well, <laughs> he wanted to beat my brains out when I got arrested for drugs, and then when the McDonald's thing happened, that really you know put him over the thing he said that's what you get for being so fucking greedy that was his exact words wow
4: when we first met with you and you you told us that you had spent some time on the run how would you describe that that period in your life
0: well there was a a lot of good times because it's like every day you live it like this is the last day before I go to jail (laughs) (laughs) so I may as well have a nice dinner I may as well do everything that I ever wanted to do I think my hair was pretty dark when I started (laughs) by the time I got arrested uh, 18 months later it was most of it was gray. so no matter where I was if I saw two guys in suits I figured they were marshals (laughs) so I don't think I I would want to do it again but just chalk it up to experience and you know it was a good experience overall (laughs) that that a lot of people can't say they ever did something and they never had that feeling. That's true. Definitely.
4: Yeah, most people don't live on the edge like that.
0: No, they don't. They don't. Maybe they should. (laughs) Not necessarily be a fugitive, but... uh,
5: (laughs) Even though you've had your brushes with the law, you actually used to be a cop for a little while. Can you tell us about that?
0: I always had the desire to become a policeman. You went on at 18 years old. You were just a cadet. You worked in administrative work. And then when you were 21, you became a regular officer. But the good part about it was all that seniority went with you. Basically, I could have retired at 38 years old with a full retirement.
4: What was it? Your, you, you had a gun that got discharged? What was the story initially? No,
0: it was a funny thing. I had a, like a starter pistol at a party. We were messing around. Somebody got in a fight or something, and I think I shot the pistol into the ground or something. And so the police came, and that was it.
4: I must have imagined that you told me that you were dancing.
0: No, no. <laughs> yeah, if you saw me dancing, <laughs> I'd probably get arrested for that too. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It had nothing to do with dancing. <laughs> uh, that's
4: funny. Yeah, I, no, funny. I For some reason, in, in my mind, you, you told us you just us, wanted it to be. I that. wanted it you to want. You know, just living every day to your fullest. Why? Why did you get fired?
0: Police cadet. You didn't have a gun. You had nothing. You didn't even have a badge.
4: So what were you doing walking around with a pistol?
0: It was a starter pistol.
4: What? I, see, I don't know the difference between a starter oh, pistol. Oh, starter pistol. Well, pri- a starter
0: like pistol. It shoots blanks. Yeah, when you, like when you start a race, I ah. you shoot yeah, the pistol race, off. Yeah, Okay.
4: So what were you doing with the starter yeah.
0: pistol? I heard they were going to have a race there. (laughs) 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 They were going to have all the girls run around (laughs) at the apartment. That
5: sounds like a fun party. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Of course,
4: of course. I don't know why I asked such a dumb question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There was this club I used to go to, just a social club. And we're sitting there having a drink, and this one guy, his name was John, he said, boy, you guys want to hear a funny story. This guy got hired at 8 o'clock in the morning, and he got fired at 9 o'clock. <laughs> and the guy's were going, no, nah, I don't believe it. I said, you know what, John, you're not going to believe it. That was me. He said, get out. <laughs> I said, I swear to God, that was me. Wow. So it- that was it. Then I could never, ever get hired, even if I put it on there. So I passed all the physicals and the uh, written tests, everything. But when they did background investigation, they wouldn't hire me.
5: How do you make the leap from police officer to the drug life?
0: Well, I had a lot of jobs in between. And at one time, uh, well, let's see, where do I go from here? I went back to Pittsburgh from Atlanta, and I went back to the trucking company I used to work for. I shipped my mother... A chair out of salvage. and that's how it all ended for me. that that was probably like the biggest turning point in my life because I, I I mean I was doing really, really well.
5: They got upset that you sent something personal.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, they I got fired for that. For shipping a chair out of salvage for I shipped a chair out of claimed salvage which you're not supposed to do you're supposed to send it. i think back then you had to send it to St. Louis or something and i shipped it to my mother and somebody must have reported me wow and that's how i lost my job and then nobody would help me in fact they they even filed charges against me really yeah there was a guy that was in the security department that i never say it happened because this this guy didn't like me, but it, it really had it had nothing to do with it. He was doing his job, and you know he figured he's trying to make a name for himself.
5: Wow!
4: So much, that, much
0: I, like Doug Matthews, <laughs> right?
4: You lose your job. How long from that point until you got busted by the
0: DEA? Oh, that was. Let's see. Oh, geez, that was in '68. 1968. I was living in Detroit and I moved to Florida. I didn't get into drugs probably until 1979. With Harold Robbins? At that time, when I met Harold Robbins, I wasn't selling drugs.
4: Right, no. That was was the
0: first time I experienced drugs.
4: You know, I've never talked to anybody who's
0: tried amyl nitrate. That was for heart patients, I think, to revive them. Right. So what, if what, I remember right, that's what it was for. What was the experience and like? Yeah, what was are, going, yeah. What are the
5: effects? What happens?
0: It scared the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. And Harold Robin says, "Why don't you tell me you never did it before?" I said, ah, "I just wanted to try." It. <laughs> so I guess that shows what a jerk off I am about everything in my life. <laughs> Amyl nitrate, McDonald tickets. Drugs. <laughs> so
4: You have no reservations to, to try something at least once. Right. It's probably an incorrigible trait, although some of the options that were put in front of you to try definitely gotten you into a bit of trouble.
0: Yeah, but nobody twisted my arm. Yeah. Right. You know, I, it's like a, as I've been watching the series, and, you know, some of these store people that keep saying, you know, how they got duped and they got this. You know, who, who in their... Am I allowed to swear on this? You can swear. Oh, yeah, yeah. you can. Because you, you know how I talk. Yeah. <laughs> it, be you. Who the fuck in the right mind? Somebody's giving you a ticket for a million dollars that you think it's
5: legitimate.
0: <laughs> That's, uh, that like is it fell a... out of the sky.
4: Now, what about George, though? In George's situation, which you saw in episode four, and could you actually see it from his perspective that, for his foster father, he didn't know Uncle Jerry or Jerry Jacobson, right? I,
0: right? Yeah. If everything that he says is the truth, and I have no reason to doubt it, yeah. Like somebody comes to him, and he, you know, he, he could, he he probably altered Jerry's story because I I know a lot of people. I told him that I won the ticket. Uh, You know, different stuff like that or somebody else won and they wanted somebody else to do it. I couldn't do it because of my tax bracket and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I I could, you know, in his story, I can almost believe. And he trusted the guy so much like that was his what his uh, foster father. Yeah. Yeah. Foster father or something that. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I could see where he totally got duped.
4: Dwight Baker, in sworn testimony, actually said, um, when asked by Mark Devereux, why did you tell this story to uh, your foster father or your foster son, George Chandler? And Dwight said that it was Jerry Jacobson who told him to do that. Jerry Jacobson, on cross-examination, also corroborated this, that it was, it was Jerry's idea for Dwight to tell this story.
0: Yeah, but that, that's basically what I told the people. And then again, I told Devereux that I lied to these people. And uh, Matthews, I told him, and you know, he, he was the one that said to me, he said you're either the best salesman in the world or the biggest fucking liar in the world. I said, I'll take your pick. <laughs> <laughs> you got
4: hired as a police officer. So did Jerry Jacobson. Did you guys ever talk about being a cop? Never.
0: I don't think we've, to this day, I don't think we've ever discussed that.
4: Did you ever eat any of his ribs? No, I didn't. In episode five, we we also introduced a lot of people to Jerry Jacobson's biological son. Jerry Jacobson had told us as well that his dad had made the most amazing ribs. And as we were talking about it, because both James and I love ribs... I mean, who, who doesn't if you...
5: If Brian you really loves ribs, especially the rib okay. story for some reason.
4: So Jared was telling us how he's been a chef for, for many years at different restaurants, and his father's ribs were this prized secret recipe. We actually have a clip from one of our deleted scenes.
1: They were absolutely delicious. He'd uh, slow cook those things all day. you come into the house and the place smelled like a barbecue restaurant. He used to tell me that he used to make his own barbecue sauce, and one day he slipped. One day he asked uh, Linda where, where the barbecue sauce was, and I was thinking, oh, it's in a pan in, in the refrigerator. And here comes out a bottle of Sweet Baby Ray. The guy was like, this is your secret sauce this whole time? I don't know who knows what he said, but I was just like, really? And it's funny because this is you know this was probably just a few years ago too. Like in the last five, six years. You know, this is obviously after all the aftermath of everything, you know, and you're still lying about your you can't tell me sweet baby Ray's barbecue sauce, your son is the chef. <laughs> you can't tell him it's a jar of sauce, you tell him it's making himself. So lies continue. <laughs> For no reason.
4: (laughs) Jared Jacobson, Jerry Jacobson's son, talks about all the lies as if his father is nothing but but a liar. Did you ever find that Jerry, when you ever dealt with him, was inconsistent or would ever lie to you?
0: Never. Never. I had very very few dealings with Jerry especially in the beginning and then later on we we would just meet just to give me the winning piece and then when I had the money then I would get the money to him
4: so he never asked you for money up front either
0: never 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 wow. he was you know very fair with me and I, I can't, rem- no, I, I know he never told me a lie. If he did, it, it didn't matter. I, I, I really had no, no relationship at all. Jerry
4: had uh, a way about trying to achieve something from nothing, or... It's a bit of an
5: opportunist. Here's a deleted scene where we talk with one of his ex-wives about a couple instances of him being an opportunist. <laughs> ¶¶
2: While we were working at the Hollywood Police Department, Jerry got uh, a broken wrist. He sustained off duty. He was in an altercation. Some sort of fight, yes. That broken wrist, he kept saying that it was broken so bad that he couldn't use it, couldn't fire his gun. But yet he would take power tools and build alternators, that kind of thing. He went out on workman's comp and then sued the city for disability and he got a check every month and still does. Yes, he got sick with this Guillain-Barre syndrome, but that was later. I've got the doctor's report of that wrist break and reading that report, that wrist was just just a regular wrist break. Didn't cause any of those other things he said it caused. And it was over and over and over again. He was in some nice hotel, and he tripped. And he tried to sue the hotel for his back being hurt. And he wore this little thing on his back. But when the suit didn't go through, his back was fine. Jerry was the kind of person that was always trying to figure the easy way. How do you get a free lunch? How can you do this without getting caught? The moral of the story is there are no free lunches, but there may be some brownies hidden somewhere. Does that make any sense?
4: Does that make any sense, AJ?
0: Uh, Jerry, well, what she says, yeah, makes sense. But uh, Jerry, see, I never ever saw that person. But that's a lot of people are opportunists, right? You know, true. They they figure, well, I slipped here. Why not? Why not? Especially down here in South Florida. Right. right. It's big business down here.
4: So in the series, you know, we talk about his illness, his gambre, which often is confused with MS because they share very similar traits. Uh-huh. In the series, we almost make the assumption, from from the FBI's point of view, that it was because of the gambre slash MS that he left the police force in Hollywood, Florida, early on. But it was actually a result of this wrist break. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. And, and that he had claimed disability from. Do you remember him ever talking about his Gambray? Or
5: MS. Or M- MS?
0: You know, he never brought up the MS. I don't think he did.
5: Getting back to, in general, the mechanics of how some of this works, were there any similarities between moving drugs and moving the game pieces?
0: Nah, not really. You know, you you have the same apprehensions. Like if you're going to meet somebody with a kilo of Coke, that's a lot more dangerous than giving them a little fucking coupon.
2: (laughs) True. Very true. A coupon
0: I could swallow (laughs) if something happened. But I mean, I was always apprehensive when I gave out a ticket. For some reason, I don't know, I wouldn't sleep the night before when I was traveling to go someplace. It always was on my mind, and and I would go with them to McDonald's. I would wait outside, or I'd get a sandwich or something, and then I would go to the post office. And a lot of them, I'm the one that mailed it. Wow. That was it. I said, You're done. That's it. You'll, you'll be getting something in the mail, and that's it. You're done. So, you know, up until that point, then you relaxed. And once they get the, the check, then it, it was all over. You know, you totally relax.
4: Now, you never asked for any money up front. You know, you couldn't believe that Gloria actually mortgaged her house to get the upfront money, that you never even asked for upfront money. Is that correct?
0: That's, that's totally true. A lot of people, when I gave them tickets, I had to take them to dinner. They, they didn't even have money for dinner. Wow. <laughs> and I'm giving them a million dollars. You say at least they could have taken in some bottles and cast them in <laughs> to take me to dinner <laughs> for giving them a million dollars. They could
5: have taken in McDonald's.
0: Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Did you ever
4: have an issue collecting or getting the money from them?
0: Never, never.
4: Let's talk for a minute about your arrest, because there was actually more to the story that we didn't have a chance to include in the episode. The version that's in the episode is somewhat of a truncated version of what actually happened. Doug Matthews tells us that he was trying everything to get you out of the house and wanted to be the first federal agent to, uh, to accomplish his task. He tried the newspaper trick, which didn't work. And then he came up with this idea of doing an undercover.
5: Part of Doug Matthews, his, his plan was to have another agent dress up like a construction worker and do some construction out front and get you to come out of the house. Do you remember that?
0: The construction worker was out there working, supposed, And I says, hi, good morning, how you doing? I says, so what are you doing? And he says, oh, we're surveying a road. We're putting a new road. And I said, oh, good. I says, who's paying for it? Because I, I said, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> he says, oh, I don't know. I said, oh, I said, I said, okay, can I get you a cup of coffee? He said, no, I don't need anything. You know, he was kind of, he, you know very curt when I was trying to be friendly with him. And then the deputy came to the gate and he said that there was a string of home robberies in a neighborhood, and they wanted us to come down and identify. They had a couple people in custody. And the guy said, oh, it won't take long. I said, well, I'm going someplace. I said, you know what? I said, I really didn't care. I really don't care. He said, I'll only take a couple minutes. I said, all right. So we get in the car, and then we went down to the corner and then got out, and then that's when uh, Matthews arrested me.
5: So you've seen several of the Shamrock Productions interviews. There was one specific interview that Doug Matthews described to us. Unfortunately, no one knows where the footage is for this. Here is Doug Matthews describing one of his favorite Shamrock Productions interviews in a
3: deleted scene. So, I'm like, man, let's, let's go out and talk to this guy. He comes out of the door and kind of meets us in the driveway. I go, hey, everybody stay in the car. And so he's telling me, he goes, look, I just want to tell you guys, like, my wife is a freak on keeping the house clean. Like, she is OCD. And I go, well, you wants to take her shoes off or something? He's like, she probably does, but she's told me, no, it's all good. So I'm motioning to come on in. This house, the inside, immaculate. Nothing out of place. I mean, hospital clean. And so he's telling us how he won the prize, all the BS. And we've done this again four or five times before. And so there's a part at the end where it's the confetti, the big pop. And it just so happened to be that Amy, she grabbed the thing for like a gymnasium or something, whatever it was. And so she hits this huge confetti bomb. Boom, explosion. It startled me, and I look back. I'm not kidding you, for a good 30 seconds, that shit was falling. I don't remember it being that much on the beat, because we did it everywhere we went. And it was three inches thick, all over, I mean, on the table, in the lamp. I mean, it was everywhere. You could just see Miss Davis, she's dying. And I said, oh my God, I forgot. You are like OCD on, on cleanliness. She's like, yes I am. And I go, damn Amy. And little Amy's over there with the thing. And she's just like, her whole face is lit up red. She's, <laughs> she doesn't know what to say. <laughs> and she's, the lady is like, it's it's okay. She was telling herself that it's okay, right?
0: <laughs> That's rich. <laughs> That's funny.
4: When you first saw the Shamrock Productions footage, did you have any idea that they had done these undercover operations?
0: No, I didn't. Well, I I knew it was undercover with Hoover.
4: Once you got busted.
0: But Yeah, once I got busted. No, it, yeah, prior to that, now I had no knowledge of that they had done this to other people and so on and so forth.
4: Well, what was it like watching that footage, obviously, and especially with Michael Hoover, because Michael was a good friend of yours.
0: He said that this girl was really interested in him. <laughs> I know Hoover. <laughs> he could, he couldn't make out in a whorehouse with a fistful of fifties. <laughs> so, so he said, "Yeah, this girl. I think, I think something's gonna happen here." You know, I mean, I love Mike. Don't, don't get me wrong when I say that. But he, he just always had a thing with women. He was, I don't know. And, and he was a good-looking guy until he put on all that weight. Drinking them 42 Coca-Colas a day. Oh my gosh, Jesus, He drank 42 Cokes a day. He would get up in the morning, he didn't have coffee, he had
4: a Coke. <laughs> you know, were you feeling bad for Michael in, in watching the footage? I,
0: I felt more bad for Mike Hoover than anything. It made a fool out of him. You know, he thought that this was all legit and everything and then find out, uh, I mean, it was like a real smack in the face for him. And I, I felt his pain. And when I watched it again, I felt that pain again. Oh. Michael
5: tells a pretty elaborate story to the FBI in that Shamrock Productions interview. Who came up with that story?
0: I did not coach him on that story. In fact, I think, if I remember right, that one of the magazines did get wet or something.
4: Did you tell him a story that if, you know, if ever you were asked, this
0: is what you're supposed to say? No, no. But, you know, Mike was not stupid. You know, even if I didn't say anything to him, he's been around a block, you know, a hundred times before me. He was never going to say, I, oh, I got the ticket from my friend, AJ. I wasn't worried about that. Right. I, I had told everybody once they got arrested, I said, do whatever you got to do. If they ask you if you're going to testify against me in court, say definitely.
4: But you never, you never ever thought yourself that you would get arrested or that Michael would get arrested. What, what did you think was the worst that was going to happen if you got in trouble?
0: I thought the charge would be receiving stolen property. Which is what, a misdemeanor? Yeah, it's like nothing. Did you
5: have any idea that there were other people doing what you were doing, like Dwight Baker and, and Jerry Columbo, people Oh, like I'm that? sure
0: there was people before me. I, I think at one time I was told he was doing it for years with other people, and I guess he still was doing, doing it with other people
5: surely through your life you've seen more than your fair share of, of friends get busted. I mean, is that mm-hmm. is that a consistent thing? It's it's when you start, the greed starts to kick in
4: and that's right, what right.
0: leads to it? But, but, you know, like with the McDonald's, if I would have quit after the first one, the same thing would have happened.
4: For you, right?
0: right. Yeah. yeah, for me, right, exactly. You just don't know when to quit. You say, ah, one more, one more, like I said about me and Jerry, there were supposed to be the five million dollar one. We were gonna I was gonna cash it in, we were gonna split the money, and that was it, right into the sunset. It'd be all over. In
4: a lot of ways, I mean that's probably Jerry Jacobson's one of his biggest mistakes was he didn't know when to quit. I mean, twelve years that he was in mm-hmm. some capacity doing what he was doing. You assume that you're invincible, but had he stopped, especially had he stopped. The year prior, the chances of him getting busted would have been quite
0: slim, if not at all. Yeah, that, that's always possible. But, you know, people would talk, I think, afterwards. Somebody might say something. But maybe the statute of limitations would have been up by then, and it wouldn't have mattered. Or you'd have to but, prove uh, it. Like, you'd have to prove it, though. Uh huh. Yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, something to think about. But to, it, it's tough. When you're making money like that, you say, ah, you know, th- this is going to go on forever. And and I still say that to this day. I, oh, I blame Jerry, too. He should have had more fucking brains than be dealing with these assholes. I went all over the country to give people tickets. Here, they're giving them all within a 200-mile radius of Jacksonville.
5: Right. right, yeah. They're...
0: No, it, 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 that just, I mean, you know, and this guy's connected to the mob. He's connected to his ass. <laughs> Being that fucking stupid. Yeah. Did you ever tell him that? Who? Jerry? Jerry? No, I, I think he must have really been enthralled with that Robin that, uh, you know, I, I really don't know what happened after her husband. I mean, from watching the story... I guess that's where I came into the picture after yeah, right. uh, Jerry Jerry Gen- Gennaro died, and I don't know did did he keep doing things with Robin? No, no. After, after after the guy died.
5: Yeah, after Jerry Colombo passed away, then uh, he basically cut off all ties with that okay. side okay.
0: of it. Okay. And oh, okay. And moved so on I, to I, you. I didn't know, so because I, I I think it would still be going on today. Wow.
5: You think if 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 nobody had come forward with this, it just never would have stopped.
0: Yeah, it, it it's too hard to stop. You're making money like that, but it, it's just like in the drugs. You understand? You're making so much money. I, I know all the drug dealers. They had a like a timetable. First thing they buy is a Rolex. Then they buy a Mercedes Benz. That's how it was back in the '80s. Right. You know, and then then they buy a big house and. Then you get to a point, then you go, you go on vacation. The next thing you know, you're chartering planes. You're making, you're making so much money. It gets boring.
5: <laughs> <laughs> you, there's nothing else to buy.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. And to ma-
4: you got to maintain that lifestyle, too, at that
0: point. Right, right, right. It gets, you know, your wife buying so much stuff. It's just, but I, I just think it would have carried on to other people. See, with me, I did it like a business. It was a business. I looked at, I, even the drugs, I looked at it as a business. I didn't give out free samples, and I didn't do this. And it did, But the end, got the same end results. I got arrested.
5: So, AJ, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and being so open and talking about everything with us.
0: I always enjoy you, too. Take care. Bye-bye.
5: That was fun. I, I love AJ.
4: I feel like we could talk to him all day.
5: Oh, man. We could talk to him for, for hours and hours, and we have. And it's it just every time you learn a new, interesting facet about his life, it, it's just mind-blowing. Now, we would like to address some of the questions that you, the listeners, have. So, Brian, I posed this question to you from Scott Salmon. Ten creams and five sugars in a coffee, question mark. So this question has literally been blowing up Twitter like crazy. Oh, this is a, a really great question. We were in the car when it happened. McDonald's
4: has told us that the number of creamer orders have actually skyrocketed in recent uh, weeks.
5: We're setting a trend.
4: Have you ever tried 10 creams in your coffee?
5: Actually, it was really weird for me because at the time, I didn't think it was weird because I've never had coffee. And then later on, when we were looking at it in the edit bay and people were in the room with us, everyone freaked out about it. I was like, well, this must be pretty weird. Let's put it in the show. I mean, here's the thing. like, If you get a latte, it's
4: pretty much like 90% milk. And like 10% espresso. So he just wanted a latte from McDonald's.
5: (laughs) The McCafe
4: latte (laughs) coming to you soon. Our next question comes from Allison Williams from Raleigh, North Carolina. Raleigh. Is it Raleigh? It's Raleigh. Raleigh. All these pieces would come in and they would be open with white gloves, etc. And they must show the code under blacklight, but would always have an issue. So were there a lot of people trying to pull another scam?
5: There were flaws built into these game pieces on purpose. Imperfections within the printing and the blacklight pen all helped to keep this game secure. And in some cases, like, people
4: would be aggressive. They would write letters from their attorneys saying that our client had sent in a winning game piece, and they said, well, this is actually not the real game piece.
5: All right, our next question comes from John Austin. From Kent Square, Pennsylvania. How did the money payoff work? That is, the ticket winner gets a million dollars, but has to pay considerable tax, and he/she wouldn't know how much was netted until after they did their tax return. Then what percentage could they keep and what percentage got kicked back?
4: It depended on what point in time, who the recruiter was. Obviously, when Jerry Colombo was in the mix, he dealt with things very differently than how AJ or Dwight Baker. So it just, it, it was different in each instance. Our next question comes from Jason G. Hi, can Doug get a spinoff? Ha! Love the show and the podcast.
5: First off, thank you for reading it like that. I feel much better about my day. Second, we might be working on something with Doug, so stay tuned. This is from
4: Ryan Bowersox. How did the other winners figure out that they should not go to Vegas or participate in the reunion? Was that just part of coaching, grooming, or was the mob starting to figure out that the FBI was on to them?
5: That was really the luck of the draw. It was the first people to commit to going to this Vegas trip. Those are the people that came in for the Shamrock Productions interviews. Our next question comes from Maxwell Kagan in Atlanta, Georgia. Did Jerry and the Columbos have access to only the instant winner pieces, or did they actually have the pieces that were needed to complete the Monopoly game? For example, did they have Boardwalk to go along with Park Place? Brian?
4: Jerry Colombo did have multiples. He had, he had the instant million-dollar prize game piece. He had the Boardwalk and Park Place. There were also, in a few instances, like with Lee Casano, there were like four pieces together for her Yeah, it was three
5: or four pieces, and you put them all together, and you get $100,000. So the answer is he had all of them. Yep. Our next
4: question is from David Holzer. David Holzer writes, How did Jerry from Simon Marketing and Uncle Dominic actually meet? Who approached who? How did they first connect?
5: This is a hard one to answer because Uncle Dominic passed away, but... From what we've heard, it was through some shady connections that Uncle Jerry had introduced him to Uncle Dominic because he wanted to expand the fraud. Some people
4: have often thought that this was tied to Marvin. Oh, Marvin. Yeah,
5: Marvin could have, and who knows? Could have been.
4: All right, our next question is uh, from Mike Schubert. This is an audio question.
1: Hey, James and Brian. My name is Mike Schubert. I'm a huge fan of the documentary as well as the podcast that you're making to go along with it. I think the music that is used in McMillions is absolutely fantastic. And I would love to know more about how you chose the songs, where you got the music from, and anything in regards to the music selection throughout the documentary, because I think you do a great job of using it to heighten certain scenes.
5: We really love the music too. That's why we chose it. It's a layered question because first, you have to have enough music to cover six hours. So we... Um, we took a a long time to pick a fantastic composer in Pinar Toprak. She came off of working on this really small project called Captain Marvel before ours. And we were just lucky enough to get a meeting with her and she really enjoyed the story and dove into this craziness with us. And then as far as the popular songs, that was all of us putting our 90s nostalgia together to choose some of the best things. And Brian... How did you feel about uh, the music selection? Well, we always wanted to keep it
4: rooted in the 90s or in that caper-esque thriller-type vibe. really have to give hats off to Jody McVeigh Schultz, who was our supervising editor on the series. and But Jody really helped in shaping the initial tone often what you do when you're just feeling something out is you, you start playing with what we call temp music to just get a, a vibe. But oftentimes when you do that, it doesn't really feel like, you know, it doesn't have one sound because you're pulling from all these various sources. And that's the beauty of what a composer does is they take the spirit and they create a sonic landscape that can apply to the entire series. And we did have, RJD2, we had a couple songs from RJD2.
5: We had a a fantastic team that helped us get popular songs in Jill Myers and and Sarah uh, Manakee-Garisi. To be able to get songs like This Is How We Do It, RJD2, and even to get a Billy Joel song to end out the entire show, it's very difficult to track all that down, and we absolutely had to use the most perfect song for the show ever created if we wanted to keep things 90s. Ben Caught Sealin' by Jane's Addiction came out in the 90s, and, I mean, the name of the song says it all.
4: Right. That was actually one of the first pieces of music that we... That was like one of the first things we ever did was
5: create that sequence. Yeah. Well, thank you for sending in all of those questions. We love hearing from you. It's really, really cool that uh, people think so critically about this show, and we'll be able to address more questions at the end of the next episode. That is it for episode five of the McMillions podcast. If you have any questions
4: about this episode or any future episodes coming up, please contact us. And
5: James, again, how do they do that? You can email us at That's McMillions spelled with an S, not the normal dollar sign like you'll see on advertisements around the world.
4: And if you want to record your voice and email it to us, we can play your question right here on the show.
5: Don't forget to check out our finale episode of McMillions coming next Monday night at 10 p.m. on HBO. And see you next week for episode six of the McMillions podcast. This
4: podcast was produced by FunMeter in conjunction with Unrealistic Ideas. For FunMeter, I'm Brian Lazarte,
5: and I'm James Lee Hernandez.
4: Joe Fenstemaker produced this episode. Our consulting producer is Barry Finkel from Pineapple Street Studios. JP Hesser mixed this episode. And the music heard here comes from our actual series and was composed by the fabulous Pinar Toprak.
5: Unrealistic Ideas is Mark Wahlberg, Steven Levinson, and Archie Gipps. And of course, none of this would be possible without the fantastic support of HBO. You can find The McMillions Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, the HBO Go and Now apps or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.